This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Platka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? I use that expression repeatedly throughout this podcast, Mark. What the hell is going on? Well, let me turn it on you, Danny. What the hell is going on? Because you've written an amazing essay in National Review, the title of which is The Uselessness of the UN Has Been on Full Display Since October 7th. The UN, we, we all know we're veterans of the, of the UN wars, going back to our days with Jesse Helms on the Center Foreign Relations Committee. Has the UN reached peak UN at this point? Is this, is this, has this conflict brought out everything that we hate about the United Nations in, on full display for the entire world? I think it has, actually. I just worry that it's not going to have any consequences. I mean, we talk in the podcast about about some of the problems that we've seen over the last uh, over the last couple of months, in addition to the problems we've seen over the last, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. But um, thank you for the nice words about my piece. I wrote a piece in National Review and, and just laid out sort of agency by agency uh, what it was that people had been saying, including the most senior human rights officials of the United Nations, the Secretary General of the United Nations. Suffice it. So give it to so, us. Well, uh, give us their quotes. Uh, Tell us what they've uh, said. Well, okay. So we talked about Antonio Guterres in, in the podcast. He noted before the Security Council, I should add, he noted that the October 7th attack, quote, did not happen in a vacuum, unquote. Martin Griffiths, who is the UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Release, said, and he's a, he, anybody who wants to look him up, he is a very active, very active tweeter. On his Twitter account on October 7th, the day of the Hamas attack on Israel, he professed himself, quote, extremely alarmed by the rapidly escalating events in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory, period. Violence, he said, he tweeted, is never the answer. That was really the last mention he made with any balance. Then he went on and talked about bone-chilling violence. That's a direct quote, bone-chilling, against uh, the uh, unfolding in the occupied Palestinian territories. He always calls it that. Then Then he was very troubled by the, quote, noose that the Israelis were tightening around the Palestinians. Now, you know, you can be troubled by what's happening to the Palestinians, right? Because there are Palestinians, not as many as we would like, but Palestinians who are... Um, who are not with Hamas and who are being victimized by Hamas and because of what Hamas did. But that's not really his problem. <laughs> UNRWA, which is not simply in charge of Palestinian what UNRWA refugees. Is. What is UNRWA? UNRWA is, the, UNRWA is the United Nations Relief Work Agency. It is the only agency within the entire United Nations system that is devoted solely to one thing, which is the question question, quote-unquote, of Palestinian refugees. There were 700,000 Palestinian refugees in 1948 at the end of the war that happened after the United Nations partition that created, should have created a state of Israel and a state of Palestine, but instead only created a state of Israel. There are now well over 5 million so-called refugees 
most of these people, of course, are not refugees at all. They live in permanent structures. They live in they live in real homes. They've left uh, they've left the Middle East. But but UNRWA exists for them. UNRWA has on you know, and again we see this most frequently on Twitter. Um, UNRWA has not even mentioned the hostages. UNRWA has not even mentioned what happened on October the seventh. UNRWA has been unremitting and unapologetic, including when a photo was published of UNRWA's own employees celebrating the attacks of October the 7th. UNRWA is basically... Because they're members of the what I would. Well, <laughs> yes, but basically UNRWA is, for all intents and purposes, a front for Hamas. Yeah. And we pay, for we pay for it. It's absolutely unbelievable. And I, I just... You know, what outrages me is not that they behave exactly as you and I would expect them to behave. What outrages me is that we freaking pay for it. No, it's exactly right. I mean, you've calculated the numbers and we pay $18 billion a year for the U.N. system. Um, And what do we get out of it? Not only do we get nothing good, it's an actively malign organization in so many ways around the world in, in this case. And if you think about this, you know, this is this is a crisis. This should be a crisis of uh, for the left. Because they actually believe in the United Nations. You and I, you know, we, we don't care much about the right. United Nations. We're conservatives. We believe right. in state sovereignty. We believe that the U.S. is the guarantor of peace and security around the world, not some feckless, you know, organization on the banks of Turtle Bay uh, in New York. We believe that the U.S. military is a force for good. And we don't believe that any supranational institution should constrain our foreign policy or tell us where we can deploy our troops, where we can't deploy our troops, how what we have to do, send us in front of the U.N. International Criminal Court for a conduct of our form. We don't like this organization, right? But at least, you know, we're okay. Okay, you want to help refugees, you want to do some peacekeeping operations, do that well. And they don't even do that well. But for the left, this is an organization that is their be all and end all. This is what they believe in. They believe that America is a malign force in the world that has to be constrained by the United Nations. It has to, there should be no authorization of military force for anything, that nothing's legitimate unless we get, we get the authorization of the United Nations. And here we are in Two of the worst crises on the face of the earth right now, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the Hamas-Iran attack on Israel. And the UN, not only are these sort of sub-institutions of the UN malicious and malevolent in in their behavior, but it's doing nothing. Russia has a veto in the Security Council, so it can, you know, it can just stop the UN from doing anything when it comes to, uh, to Ukraine. And, you know, so this is a huge crisis for the left, isn't it? Well, it ought to be. I mean, it ought to be. And the funny thing is... Or are they just ducking it and pretending it's not happening? Well, I think that, honestly, it's an afterthought. I mean, you know, for for people who are so profligate in their spending, basically what it means is $18 billion is an afterthought. And uh, unfortunately, that is the way it's become for Congress as well, right? And so, yeah, you know, they use the United Nations as a rhetorical tool but fundamentally, they don't care whether it's doing anything, whether it's working, whether it's stopped the war in Ukraine or condemned Hamas's attack or is doing anything to prevent war in the in, in the Pacific, which is, you know, is sort of edging closer and closer. I mean, this organization bears no relationship to what the founders believed was its purpose. And when I say the founders, obviously, I mean, the U.N.'s founders, not not our own founders. I am perfectly comfortable with with getting rid of it completely. As best I can tell, it does no good, in particular when you weigh the the harm that it does. It doesn't protect people. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about in this podcast, 
and it's it's been memory hold by the left is for example the UN's record on rape right peacekeepers engaged in widespread rape the unbelievably bad record that the United Nations has on sexual harassment and abuse in in all all of its organizations it is you know even if you even if you think china should get taiwan russia should get ukraine hamas is totally right and absolutely iran should sit and chair the human rights council which it did last week <laughs> unbelievably <laughs> even if you believe all those things are cool do you also believe that the people who are there to ensure peace between warring groups who are ravaged by conflict should go around you know, taking the little something something for themselves from the cute women in the in in the group. I mean, it's incredible. We should be demanding reform, cutting its money, and telling them that they're on a schedule. That's what we ought to be doing. Well, here's what we ought to do, Danny. We ought to kick Russia off the Security Council. So I, I mean, we talked about your piece. I had a piece last year after the Russian invasion talking about how President Zelensky. Uh, called out the UN Security Council and said that you should remove Russia from the Security Council or dissolve yourselves. And everyone said, well, how can you how can you remove Russia? They're a permanent member of the Security Council. They have a veto. And that's not actually true. You could remove Russia from the UN Security Council because, you know, there are the UN Charter. I'm going to read you what the UN Charter states. The Republic of China, France, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and the United States of America shall be permanent members of the Security Council. Um, last I checked, the Republic of China isn't a member of the UN Security Council. The People's Republic of China is a member of the UN Security Council. And that's because despite Taiwan's veto-wielding vote on the Security Council until, until 1971, a, a simple majority vote of the UN kicked them off the Security Council, kicked them out of the UN, and gave that seat to People's Republic of China, which was not a founding member of the UN. If the People's Republic of China can be the successor of the Republic of China, why can't Ukraine be the successor of the uh, U Union of Soviet Socialist Republics? Why shouldn't we just kick Russia off the Security Council and put Ukraine on a country that shares our values, a country that's fighting for freedom, a country that doesn't invade its neighbors and doesn't and, and doesn't veto efforts of the UN to help peace security, a country that's not an ally of Iran, a country that didn't welcome Hamas members uh, right after the October 7th attacks to the Kremlin <laughs> and embrace them and all the rest of it. Maybe, maybe that would be a more, if you wanted to reform the UN and actually make it stand up for the values that we all share, maybe Ukraine should be the successor of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. As it all, Vladimir Putin says they're one and the same people, where the Russian and Ukrainians are one people, uh, one nation, uh, one motherland. Uh, so why does he get to keep the UN seat and not Volodymyr Zelensky? I love the way you think. This is so subversive. <laughs> it's so great. This is, we should be doing this all the time. What is the naughtiest, most legal, most subversive thing we could do? This is the problem with conservatism. We are insufficiently subversive, and we need to take a page out of We were terribly page. subversive in the 1990s on the foreign relations. Which is why we had so much fun. We did have so much and, fun. Uh, and now we're going to have some fun talking about the about the UN with Brett Shea. So Brett Brett is at the J. Kingham Senior Research Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs at Heritage's Margaret 
Thatcher Center for Freedom. Let me just say this about the Heritage Foundation. These people have everything titled. Brett is just Washington's best expert on the United Nations. Actually, he from 2019 to 2021, he was appointed by the UN General Assembly. God knows how that happened to serve on the committee <laughs> to serve on the Committee on Contributions, which advises the Assembly on assessments. And he also worked at the Pentagon as an assistant for International Criminal Court Policy from March 2003 to 2004. He's one of my favorite people. We didn't get into that. Oh, no, we didn't. We'll have him back. He's one of my favorite people in D.C., and we've done a ton of work together. Here's our interview. So, Brett, what a delight to have you on the podcast with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the invitation. Well, we're really happy that you were able to join us. And we want to talk to you a little bit about your favorite topic and mine, the United (laughs) Nations. I want to start really in the weeds because for me, this encapsulates everything that's wrong with the United Nations and all of its specialized agencies and you know all of these sort of global institutions that are supposed to be helping us, but end up really, A, hating us and also, you know, hating on the Jews. So... I saw a story out of Israel. There was a woman released, uh, an elderly woman who is still in the hospital in critical condition, released by Hamas. Her family went to the International Committee of the Red Cross, and they said, hey, she needs medication. And obviously, we can't do anything about it. Can we give this to you so that you can give it to her captors and save her life? And the ICRC said, yeah, no. What the hell is wrong with these people? You know, I'd heard about that story. I've not read it, so I don't know the details or the justification behind it, but it's appalling. This is the very purpose for what the International Red Cross is supposed to do. It's supposed to be a neutral actor that facilitates the access of uh, prisoners to adequate health care, adequate standards of the conditions of their imprisonment, and that sort of thing in the conditions of war, so that they are courted the protections under the Geneva Conventions. And the fact that the Red Cross would not facilitate this, would not cooperate with the Red Crescent or other organizations that it works with frequently to make sure that this happens is, is frankly, unexcusable. I'm not sure exactly what justification that they can provide to, uh, to say that that was appropriate. Brett, I'm old enough to have been close friends with your, one of your predecessors handling the UN Accounted Heritage, Chuck Lichtenstein, oh. who's one of my, fa- my favorite mm-hmm. uh, conservative leaders of all time. And Chuck famously uh, said that if the UN ever wanted to leave New York, he'd be standing by the dockside waving goodbye as you set off into the sunset. Is, was Chuck prescient? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Is there any value at all in this institution? I mean, it seems like the two biggest threats to global peace and security today are the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the Iran-backed Hamas attack on Israel, and also, by the way, the COVID pandemic, which the WHO was completely incompetent. I mean, so three, three major, the three most important things that have roiled the world, and the UN is completely incompetent on, or incapable of contributing even anything in any one of them. Why does this institution even exist? It's funny. I when I first started at Heritage, I knew Ambassador Lichtenstein, and he was he was great. He uh, uh, mentioned that story to me as well. But he had the caveat that said it would be hard to wave into the sunset as they sailed off into the Atlantic. But um, uh, so <laughs> I, I think poetry he, uh, get in the way of uh, reality, get in the way of poetry, right? <laughs> yeah, but he he was a fantastic man and and very nice and well steeped in the UN, and and he you know raised this question as well. 
And I think that one of the best things that can be said about the UN is that it's better than the League of Nations, which is a very low bar. Uh, <laughs> as, you, as many listeners know, the League of Nations was considered defunct at the start of World War II and ultimately had to be replaced by the UN. And you mentioned a couple of different crises out there. One is uh, the situation in the Middle East with Israel and Gaza, and the other one is the situation with, with Russia and Ukraine and its invasion of uh, Ukraine. And both of those are pertinent to why the organization is seized up on this matter. And that's because the Security Council has the veto. And when the major powers, the permanent members of the Security Council, have a issue is on the table, is uh, being discussed, uh, frequently they will prevent the organization from acting because they want to make sure that their interests are protected here. And you've seen over and over again complaints uh, from people saying that this is an example of why the UN is not working. Well, this was designed this way. It was designed because they knew that uh, if the United States, if the Soviet Union, if France, if Britain, if uh, you know China was not the same at the point, it was represented by China, uh, Taiwan, but not uh, mainland China. So it was not, and it was not a major power, but it happened to be one of the allies in, in World War II. Um, if if these countries did not have a veto to make sure that they could stop the organization from acting against their interests, they wouldn't sign up to join the organization. So this is a feature, not a bug, but it often makes the organization unable to address serious issues. But I think that that is also what we need to understand that the UN was the history of the UN. The first 45 years of the organization during the Cold War, the organization was basically a backwater. It addressed issues of tertiary concern, and it did so with varying degrees of success over the years. But after the Cold War, the end of history phase, we got used to thinking that the UN was front and center for addressing international problems. That's not the case. It's an organization that's not well-suited for doing that. And we're starting to see a regression back to the norm. In essence, with the situation in the world today, with the uh, animosity between Russia and the United States, between China and the United States, both veto-wielding members in the Security Council, you're seeing the organization again get pushed back into the shadows a bit and relegated to issues that are not necessarily top of the agenda on the international stage. And those issues have to be resolved through bilateral or small groups of countries if you want to be resolved at all, because the organization is ill-suited for doing that. So I want to talk about how much this organization ill-suited to helping solve the greatest problems and threats to global security in the world mm -hmm. uh, cost the American taxpayer. But before uh -oh. I get into that enjoyable question. I want to talk a little bit about the Hamas-Israel conflict because it really has thrust every little bit of the UN into, in, into sharp relief. First, we had the Secretary General, for whom the United States voted and whose candidacy we supported, this is Guterres, saying that um, October 7th, the attack of October 7th, had to be understood, quote, in context 
unquote. In other words, justifying Hamas's attack on Israel uh, and, and its brutality. He's been desperately trying to walk that back ever since, but I think that revealed the true nature. Uh, we have seen the Human Rights Council uh, continue to go after Israel. We have seen UN women's organizations silent on the rape and murder and assault on Israeli and Jewish women. And obviously, we've seen the entire United Nations structure Every agency you can think of, and even ones that are completely distant from the conflict, and of course the United Nations Relief Works Agency, solely dedicated to the question of Palestine and Palestinian refugees, none of them have talked about the hostages, none of them have demanded the release of the hostages, almost none of them have condemned the attack of October the 7th. They have reserved their ire for uh, the Israelis and for Jews in general. What the hell is wrong with them? I asked you that at the beginning. I'm going to keep asking you. How did it become this way? Yanni's just going to ask the same question over and over again. And it's always going to end with, what is wrong with them? Just so you know. Just give you a heads up. Uh, well, I it's mean, like the, a chorus. Yeah, the short answer is there's a lot wrong with it. Um, and you know, this is not just a recent problem. This is something that is deeply embedded into the UN system deeply ingrained into the statements of the organization uh, over the years. If you look back historically, uh, when the UN Security Council first passed a resolution that um, partitioned the British Mandate of Palestine and established and recognized a state of Israel, and then Israel was admitted to the organization, most of the Arab world at that time resented that decision. And they objected to it. They expressed that in various conflicts over the years. Um, but those are, those states also joined the organization and they expressed their opposition to the existence of Israel, the establishment of Israel, the recognition of Israel, um, through the, the actions of the organization, whether that's resolutions, whether that's statements on the floor, whether that's attempts to get the Security Council to act, uh, in a certain way. Um, and this inclination grew over time. As more Arab states, more Islamic states joined the organization, this position became more popular. But they also were smart in that they linked the situation that they cared about to a situation that a lot of newly independent states, former colonies that were then joining the UN, also cared about, which is decolonialization, uh, Western imperialism. And so what they did is they said, Israel is also a colonial power. Israel is also a repressive state. Our situation is very analogous to what your situation is as a former colony. Your situation should be aligned with ours. And as the membership of the organization grew, this position became a majority position in the UN system. Obviously, it culminated in a disgraceful resolution equating Zionism with racism in 1975. Uh, and this was the outward expression of this resentment and hostility toward Israel, but it's also embedded in the system, right? They have a number of committees, they have a number of bodies in the UN that meet regularly, and they also pass resolutions, they also make reports talking about Israel's crimes, Israel's repression of the Palestinians, the unfairness of the situation, and, and so this becomes embedded in the system, it's regularized, right? And so you have the Secretary General, you have UN officials uh, commenting on these reports, commenting on these uh, these resolutions, 
making statements saying that Israel is doing this bad. The Palestinians are victims in this, that, or the other. And so it becomes a, a, a sort of inertia inside the UN system. And then later resolutions refer to these earlier resolutions, and it becomes sort of embedded in the, in the intellectual uh, approach to the situation inside the UN. And so it's not even really conscious thought. It's a reflexive repetition of earlier statements and perspectives. And so when you see the Secretary General Guterres, whose awful statement uh, did equate the situation on October 7th and said, well, this did not occur in a vacuum, essentially excusing these barbaric actions, saying that they can't be held responsible for their acts because of this historical context. Uh, if Would you have been surprised if that had been said five years earlier or 10 years earlier or 15 years earlier? Of course not, because this is the way the UN talks about it, because this has been inculcated into the system that this is not the fault of the Palestinians, it's the fault of Israel. And so you see this occur again. Now, I think that he was shocked at the reaction of Israel and the reaction of the United States and the reaction of many Western countries to his statement because that would have not raised a single eyebrow five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But this situation is different. And I hope that this, this situation will force a reassessment of the organization in fundamental ways about those organizations you're talking about, about UNRWA, about how uh, UNIFIL is not meeting its mandate in Lebanon to disarm the border with Israel, uh, to disarm Hezbollah um, in that area, and, and on and so forth. And so that the UN will, again, take seriously what the principles are in its charter, which is to address matters of uh, threats to international peace and security, because it's clearly not doing so right now. And it may not be able to do so in major matters, but it should be able to do so on the margins, and it is falling down over and over again. And you can look to the history of peacekeeping. You can look to the situation in Cyprus, where it's a conflict that's been frozen since the 1960s. You can look for the situation in South Sudan. You can look for the situation in the Congo. You can look for the situation in Mali. I could go on and on and on. And the UN is simply not resolving these conflicts. At best, it is preventing a reignition of the conflict, but that's insufficient. So... Brett, for, for the left, this should be a crisis, right? Like they, they believe in supranational government. They believe in the principle that no military action is legitimate unless it's authorized by the UN Security Council. They believe that everything should flow through the United Nations. And yet the UN has been unable to play any role in any of the major conflicts or issues going back to the end of the Cold War even. They, even when, when Democratic presidents have taken military action, they haven't sought or received UN Security Council approval in them for the most part uh, on these things. We as conservatives, on the other hand, we don't believe in world government. We don't believe in supranationalism. We don't believe that uh, we should care what you know to Togo thinks of our foreign policy or what Trinidad and Tobago's opinion is on the war uh, in the Middle East. We don't care what they say unless they want to you know help a coalition of the willing in some way. So you know, as much as we decry the incompetence and ineffectiveness and fecklessness of the UN, for us as conservatives, isn't that a good thing? Other than the waste of money. Uh, well, uh, that is a, that's a big point, and I think Danny's going to bring us around to that point a little bit. But um, no, I, I actually don't think that we should be celebrating the failures because the UN, for better or for worse, is placed with a lot of these responsibilities. And as much as we we criticize the UN, the people that really should be criticizing the UN are the developing countries, the people in these places that 
depend on the organization to help them out and yet oftentimes are let down in very tragic ways. Look at the principles of the organization, right? It's that you're supposed to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. You're supposed to reaffirm the faith and the fundamental human rights and the dignity and worth of the human person, equal rights of men and women, uh, to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, to promote social progress and better standards of life and larger freedom. Those are the principles of the UN as outlined in the UN Charter. Over and over again, you see the UN not doing that. Danny mentioned threats to international peace and security, Russia, uh, the situation in Israel. But we can look further abroad than that. Um, during the Cold War, there were mo uh, hundreds of wars. The UN only had about 20 peacekeeping operations during the Cold War. It wasn't really substantially involved in many of the wars that, that beset the globe. Uh, you can look at it around the globe today. Where are human, the biggest source of uh, violations of human rights in the world today? China. The Human Rights Council has never condemned China in its entire history. Uh, the UN General Assembly has never condemned China for its human rights practices. Historically, Cuba has been a terrible abuser of human rights. The UN Human Rights Council has never condemned uh, Cuba. Uh, the UN General Assembly has never condemned Cuba. Uh, instead, they condemn the United States for its sanctions against Cuba. So, I mean, that's, it's kind of, you look over and over again, and the UN is not living to the principles outlined in the Charter. It is acting in a very politicized way that is reflective of the member states. And that is, uh, is the fundamental flaw of the organization, and it's a reality we have to deal with. Now, you mentioned how liberals look at the organization and how conservatives look at the organization. Uh, as a conservative, I look at the UN and I see it as a tool or is a tool, a box of tools, right? We should be using the tools to accomplish ends. Liberals, on the other hand, see this not as a tool, but as the end itself. That the, the organization and U.S. participation in these organizations are a good in and of themselves, are something that should be cheered just by, you know, Blinken says this over and over again. He's so proud to have a seat at the table. As if the seat at the table in itself is something to be proud of. Well, no, you have a seat at the table to accomplish something. You have a seat at the table because you represent the United States of America, which is the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, on whom global peace and security depends, unlike the United Nations. That's why you have a yeah. seat at the table. And, and that's right. And we need to, I mean, we need to take a step back and, and realize that these organizations don't have intrinsic value in and of themselves. They have value because of what they do or they don't do. And we need to look at them individually. I mean, the UN is not a monolith. It's an organization made up of many organizations, the UN system. And there are specialized agencies like the International Telecommunications Union, the World Health Organization, which you mentioned earlier, the United Nations, the UN Security Council, the UN General Assembly. There's lots of different parts of the UN. The United States needs to be looking at all these different parts of it and saying, okay, are you doing something that's advancing our national interests? If so, okay, let's support it. Is it potentially supporting U.S. interests? Okay, but it's not? Well, let's, let's go ahead and try and make it better toward meeting those ends, right? We need to use our financial leverage. We need to use our diplomacy. We need to use our engagement with other countries to try and make it better and improve it. If this is an organization that has no value whatsoever to our national interests, we need to get out of it and stop funding it because it's a waste of our time and a waste of our resources 
And so we need to have a very practical approach to international organizations that is based on U.S. national interests and working with other countries to accomplish common ends. We shouldn't be there just to have a seat at the table, as Blinken likes to say. All right. Let's talk a little bit about money. <laughs> okay. So our listeners are uh, very familiar with Mark and I reminiscing fondly about uh, our years at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the 1990s. But another reason to reminisce fondly about those years is those were the last years where there was any congressional reform of the United Nations, right? The Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Democrats and Republicans. Joe Biden. In cooperation. And Jesse Helms. Joe Biden. In cooperation with the Clinton administration, put in place a series of not far-reaching enough for sure, but the first budgetary reforms we saw, and for people who don't pay obsessive attention to the United Nations like Brett Schaefer, uh, we are the largest donor. Uh, we are the largest single donor to the United Nations. And in addition to our so-called assessed fees, in other words, the bill the United Nations gives us every year, we pay voluntary contributions as well that in many instances dwarf the amount that we are assessed. Okay. Tell our listeners what we're spending, and then let me return to the chorus of this podcast. What the hell is wrong with Congress that they continue to write this damn check for what you nicely both described as a seat at the table for a chair? <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to go ahead and use uh, the UN's numbers on this because the, the numbers uh, get kind of wonky because the U.S. fiscal year versus uh, our obligations versus our actual appropriations and the payments. So the U.N. numbers are actual numbers that they have received into the U.N. system. And last year, uh, in 2022, the most recent year that uh, those numbers were reported, the U.N. Uh, Chief Executives Board, which is the organization that tracks all this, um, reported record contributions by the United States to the U.N. system, over $18 billion last year. That's roughly $6 billion more than 2021. So a huge increase under the Congress and under the, uh, the presidency of uh, Joe Biden. A lot of this had to do with the fact that the Biden administration was paying arrears that are accumulated uh, when with, uh, Trump announced that he was suspending payments to the World Health Organization, but not all of it. A lot of this is additional money to organizations of very questionable value. You mentioned the uh, UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Uh, the Biden administration has given over a billion dollars to UNRWA since it came into office. This is an organization that Donald Trump had stopped providing funding to because this was an organization that was extraordinarily compromised. It was promoting extremism, um, celebrating terrorism uh, through its uh, school books and school materials. It was allowing Hamas members to join it as an organization, uh, as employees of the organization. It allowed Hamas, without complaint, to put tunnels and military uh, facilities in close proximity to their schools and their hospitals so that they would be protected by the presence of UNRWA and UN facilities. This is an organization that is deeply, deeply compromised and is, if not supportive of terrorism, is certainly okay with having terrorists among its, uh, its membership in terms of employment and allowing terrorism and extremism to be promoted within uh, its activities, whether those are education or whether those are 
the social media posts of its employees. So this is a this is a very troublesome organization. Yet Joe Biden says, okay, we're going to go ahead and re, uh, resume U.S. funding for this very troubled organization. We've reached a new agreement with the organization that says it's not going to be doing this anymore. You have numerous news reports, NGO reports, other sources, including the European Union, by the way, who says that these activities can, are continuing despite the fact that the U.S. reached this new agreement. Well, guess what? They're going to go ahead and continue funding it anyway. And it's uh, emblematic of the Biden administration's approach to international organizations, which is if we go in there, our presence, our uh, character, our uh, diplomatic efforts are going to be enough to turn these organizations around and fix the problems that are evident in there. And that is not happening. Over and over again, they delude themselves into thinking that if we only pay the amount that they're asking for and then provide more voluntary funding on top of that, we're going to change the nature of these organizations. That is not true. We need to do what Senator Helms, you mentioned Senator Helms' approach here, and use the tools that are available to the United States to apply pressure on them to fix themselves, whether that's using financial levers through withholding, whether making future uh, contributions contingent on reform, such as what Congress did. Senator Leahy actually responsible for this. They passed the UN Accountability and Transparency Act, which uh, withheld 15% of U.S. contributions to organizations until the Secretary of State certified that they were uh, enacting the highest possible standards for whistleblower protections and other uh, conditions to improve transparency and accountability. So there are tools available that the U.S. can use to pressure these organizations to change and improve. Congress needs to do that because the administration currently won't. Past uh, administrations have been willing to do that, but then Congress often will come in and undercut them through the back door by overriding the withholding and providing the funding regardless. Uh, an example of that would be um, overriding U.S. law to provide more funding for U.N. peacekeeping above the 25% maximum contribution in U.S. statute. So there, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting very uh, uh, weedy here. I think I'm getting into too many details, perhaps. No, not at all. But the, the fundamental point here is that the U.S. is the largest financier of the U.N. system. We provide resources by far than any other member state. On assessed contributions, there, there are essentially two different uh, categories of contributions to the U.N., assessed and voluntary. Uh, in terms of the voluntary contributions of the U.S., the U.S. paid $3.1 billion in assessed contributions to the U.N. and other organizations like the World Health Organization in 2022. That's about 24% of all assessed contributions into the U.N. system. So roughly a quarter of all contrib assessed contributions come from the United States. But if you look at the voluntary contributions, the U.S. provided almost $15 billion in voluntary contributions to the U.N. system in 2022. And that's over 38% of the UN contributions by UN member states and voluntary contributions. We provide over 50% of the contributions to the World Food Program, over 36% of contributions to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, over 34% to the UN, to UNRWA, 32% of contributions to the International Organization for Migration. These are all humanitarian organizations. And the what I want to highlight here is these are voluntary. By what I mean by voluntary is we don't have to provide a single dime of that to the organization. This is out of the generosity of the American people, the American Congress, um, and we don't have to provide any of it. And yet you get constant complaints and carping from the U.N. saying the U.S. is under-providing, that the U.S. should provide more, that the U.S. should do this. They are very, very dependent on the U.S. to provide these funds to support their activities. Yet they seem to regard it as an entitlement rather than as generosity. 
the U.S. can leverage these contributions, reward good behavior, providing more funding where that where it is merited, but it more importantly, it should be punishing bad behavior. We shouldn't be providing funding, especially voluntary funding, to organizations that that are doing bad work or compromise, such as it was going on with UNRWA. So, Brad, I'm going to accuse you of being soft on the UN here because <laughs> you understate the country, U.S. contributions. When I'm going to walk out on you here a little, mm-hmm. but when Jesse Helms went up to the UN and he laid out the numbers as they existed in mm-hmm. 2000, back then the total assessed contributions and voluntary contributions came to 1.4 billion, so it's ten time, more than 10 times that now. Mm-hmm. But he said that's pretty generous, but it's only the tip of the iceberg because he asked the GAO and the American taxpayers also spent an additional $8.779 billion from the U.S. military budget to support U.N. resolutions and peacekeeping operations around the world. So three times what we were spending on assessed and voluntary contributions, we were also spending uncredited from our military budget to support U.N. peacekeepers around the world, U.N. operations around the world, and all the rest of that. So, you know, if you take that same basic math into now, we're, we're spending three times that $18 billion out of the Pentagon budget to support U.N. operations because, mm-hmm. of course, we are very happy as conservatives that there is no U.N. army <laughs> and there is no U.N. military force. They depend on us, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're spending even, we're probably spending three times what you said when it comes to actually coming out of, our, out of the Pentagon budget. Is that wrong? I, I remember that uh, GAO report coming out and um, I don't know if anything similar has come out since then. Uh, so it's hard for me to say whether the, uh, the ratios apply, but the U.S. does support U.N. peacekeeping in very uncredited ways. Uh, for instance, providing logistic support or transportation or providing equipment. Um, it also trains a lot of peacekeepers. The U.S. provides hundreds, uh, uh, over $100 million every year in training for African peacekeepers, for instance. Uh, and so it do, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes support that the U.S. provides to the U.N. and its operations uh, around the world. And and we do, and, and that's not, uh, you know, on those books that I, uh, I was talking about from the U.N. Chief Executive's Board, but nonetheless, it exists. One of the more uh, empty talking points that is out there is from the left you frequently hear, well, uh, the UN is actually saving the U.S. money because if the U.S. were doing these operations, these peacekeeping operations, it would cost eight times as much because they asked the GAO to figure out what a U.S. comparable U.S. operation would cost. And obviously, our soldiers, our our equipment, everything else is going to be more expensive than a U.N. peacekeeping operation. Um, but it's it's a false comparison because the U.S. is obviously not going to be there in many of these places. And so to say to say that this is saving the U.S. money because otherwise we would be there is simply not true. We wouldn't be there. That's like when my daughter comes to me and tells me that she bought something on sale and saved me 40 (laughs) percent. I wouldn't have bought it for you for full price. (laughs) But that's accurate. (laughs) Hey, I have an exit question because I'm going to utter the phrase we literally utter in every single one of our podcasts. We kept you longer than we promised. Brett, you and I did a big project over a couple of years that I really enjoyed that um, prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, prior to the decision by the Chinese to threaten constantly to invade Taiwan, prior to, you know, Iran slash Hamas's attack on Israel, everybody was actually really concerned about, which is this 
very stealthy but very dangerous takeover by mm-hmm. the Chinese Communist Party of a whole series of United Nations agencies. You know, we talk about the waste of money. Fine. We talk about the, the anti-Semitism. Okay. We talk about how they're not solving the world's greatest crises. Okay. In addition, the World Health Organization and a whole variety of others were until recently or are still controlled by the Chinese Communist government. What the hell's going on there? Yeah, I mentioned earlier about the principles that the UN Charter laid out for member states. One of the things that the UN is supposed to do is that to be a member state, you're supposed to uphold those principles. Unfortunately, most of the UN is not politically free, nor is most of the UN observing human rights, basic or otherwise. It is not observing fundamental freedoms in many cases, and it is not supportive of international peace and security. So we have a situation where most of the UN member states are not necessarily supportive of the principles outlined in the UN Charter. And this was obviously a problem from the very beginning because the Soviets were a founding member of the UN in 1945. Obviously, they did not believe in democracy and they did not believe in human rights as we understand them in the civil and political sense. And so you have, in essence, member states inside the UN system that don't believe in the rules and the principles that the UN was founded on. And this has a very corrosive effect on the organization. We mentioned earlier the Human Rights Council. Um, Well, the Human Rights Council is supposed to examine and address human rights situations around the world. Well, they're obsessed with one country. Uh, Not going to surprise anybody here. It's Israel. Out of all the condemnatory resolutions that were adopted by the UN UN Human Rights Council since since it was founded in 2006. 104 or 36% of all UN Human Rights Council condemnatory resolutions were focused on Israel. By comparison, Syria has got only 43. North Korea has got 16. Iran has got 14. Russia has got seven. China, Cuba, Saudi Arabia have zero. And so it kind of gives you an idea And by the way, those numbers are from the UN Watch, which is a great organization that tracks a lot of these numbers and has a database on all this stuff. And I want to give them credit for that. But it just kind of shows you how the presence of these countries distorts the work of the organization because of their presence in the organization, their efforts to try and deflect attention from their own flaws and foibles to other countries like Israel or the United States. And China has been very effective in doing this particularly over the last 15 years or so. Um, you know, it wasn't so long ago that everybody, there was a Washington consensus across the political spectrum that China, if we just brought them into the system, then they would become more like us. Well, we brought them into the system, and China has made the system more like China. And you see this over and over again through the UN Human Rights Council, which I mentioned, but there's also the UN General Assembly where you have, uh, they finally passed a UN resolution condemning the situation on October 7th, the attack by Hamas in Israel, but they refused to condemn Hamas, the perpetrators of the aggress. Why did they do that? Well, it's presence of a majority of the UN member states simply don't want to do that. They are a hostile to Israel, and they are, by default, pro-Hamas. And you see this reflected over and over again. Inside of some of the UN technical agencies, we did a report on the International Telecommunication Union, China is flooding the zone in the standard-setting organizations. Next generation, uh, 5G, 6G, China wants to be make sure that the standards that the ITU adopts, these are the standards that every cell phone out there in the world is going to use going forward, 
they want to make sure that those standards are Chinese standards, not U.S. standards, not Swedish standards, not European standards, whatever. They want to make sure that they're, Chi they're Chinese standards because there is a financial benefit for that, but there's also a technical benefit to it in that China gets to set the rules of the road going forward. Uh, you can take a look at uh, organizations like the International Civil Aviation Organization, where China or Chinese national was in charge of that organization. Well, what happened? China would routinely violate Taiwanese airspace, and the ICAO would not condemn that. You would look at Chinese cyber attack on ICAO servers, which compromised government uh, aviation agencies around the world, and ICAO covered it up. ICAO, led by a Chinese national, was not willing to be forthright and report to member states of a threat to their own agencies that was created by a cyber attack from a Chinese-based cyber uh, uh, infiltration. And this is crazy. This is crazy that, that the other UN member states are allowing Chinese nationals to take the lead on these agencies and use them in ways that support Chinese interests rather than the interests in the international community, which is what is supposed to occur. So there are other examples of this, and we can talk more about it, but if you go to AI uh, or to the Heritage Foundation, you can find a number of different reports that Danny and I have written over the past uh, several years talking about Chinese influence in the WHO, Chinese influence in the Human Rights Council, Chinese influence in the ITU, and Chinese influence at ICAO, the International Labor Organization, and other organizations in the UN, talking about why these organizations are flawed or where they're flawed, and what the U.S. Uh, interests are in them, and what we should be doing to try and fix them. Well, Brett, I find it ironic that an institution that was founded in the wake of the Second World War, which was started by a state that sought to scapegoat and eradicate the Jews and kill the Jews, uh, has now taken up the mantle of the Third Reich and is now focused on anti-Semitism and, and, and supporting those who kill the Jews. Uh, I mean, it's just a violation of their, of their founding principle, and it's become the modus operandi of that institution. But we are so glad that you are keeping their feet to the fire, calling them out, uh, doing your amazing work over there at Heritage, and we're proud to partner with you whenever we can on it. And we're just so grateful uh, that you joined us on the pod today. Well, thank you very much. And I will say that the only state in the uh, Middle East that actually honors the principles outlined in the UN Charter in terms of democracy, human rights, is Israel. It's not the other member <laughs> states. And yet Israel is the one uh, state that seems to be the most focus of criticism by the organization itself. Amen. That tells you everything you need to know. It really does. Brett, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for rearranging your schedule. Thank you for the work you do. And thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye. So, Danny, what do you think? So, you know, one of the things that just sticks out to me like a, a sore thumb is the fact that we have leverage at the United Nations, right? I mean, as Brett laid out, we give, in some cases, 30-40% of the budget of certain organizations, and yet we sort of view this as weird charity. The, the attitude of the federal government towards these donations, and frankly, the attitude of both the Republican and Democratic Congress is, you know... I'm just, I'm given to this GoFundMe for a good cause. And of course, I would never, I would never presume in my act of charity to actually make any demands in return. And that is just insane. Think about this, Mark. The World Health Organization 
has still to this day has a secretary general who was the Chinese candidate. The World Health Organization is run by this Ethiopian Chinese shill and exonerated fully the Chinese from any blame about COVID, refused to pursue the Chinese at the outset of the COVID pandemic in order to find out more information, refused to make any demands. Okay, Donald Trump, you know, we all know what I think about Donald Trump. The Trump administration pulled out of the World Health Organization. Okay, let's pick another one. The Human Rights Council. Brett just gave us the stats on the Human Rights Council. This is a place where Saudi Arabia has been a member. Cuba's been a member. Iran is a sitting member. I mean, Russia has been a member. We actually managed to keep Russia off in the first display of spine that I've seen from the Biden administration. So what happened? The Trump administration pulled out of the Human Rights Council. Okay. I know that Biden is a Democrat. I get that he has a different attitude. But if you're going to rejoin those organizations, maybe you should get something for it. Okay, we'll join if you fill in the blank. Nope, they didn't do any of that. They rejoined every organization we pulled out of without conditions. Yeah. You know, it's nuts. You know what, Danny? Honestly, to some extent, this is their problem because this is their baby and it's a disaster and it's useless and you've got a Democratic president. You've got a Democratic president who, when he was ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, worked so hard to go along with it, to, to help Jesse Helms reform this organization and make it more effective, and you know, and all the rest of it. And now he's president of the United States, and it is absolutely worse than useless. Um, and so, you know, I look at it, and I don't believe in world government. I don't believe in supranationalism. I don't believe that we derive our legitimacy from the consent of the General Assembly of the United Nations. We derive Togo. We are just yeah, exactly. We did. We derive the legitimacy of our actions on the world stage from the consent of the governed, which is the American people. And that that is how we derive the legitimacy of what we do on the world stage. We're the world's most powerful democracy. And we're the most powerful military in the world unless we blow that by letting the Chinese overtake us. And so as far as I'm concerned, I'm with Chuck Lichtenstein. If they, you know, let's let's they can just set off to I, I, maybe they have to go to the Pacific. But I want to I want to wave sand on the dock, waving goodbye as they set off into the sunset, uh, because I just absolutely don't care about the United Nations. I want them to be constrained in doing harm to our foreign policy and our national interests. I don't want a U.N. court having the power to try our citizens for the conduct of U.S. foreign policy, which they are trying to do, which they're trying to investigate constantly, the U.S. for war crimes and trying to bring our people under their rubric. I just want them to leave us alone and let the Democrats sort it out because it's their waste of money. It's their institution. It's their it's their dream that has become the world's nightmare. And as far as I'm concerned, it's time to wake up. Amen to that. A fine note on which to end passing the buck to the Democratic Party and the president of the United States. Joe Biden, over to you. <laughs> the most competent president in our lifetime will fix this problem. Yes, yes, he, he certainly has been. <laughs> Folks, as usual, thanks for being with us. We're delighted to have you. Don't forget to send us your comments, read our Substack, and do all those nice things. Take care. See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.